When we get to heaven, there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, for we must all appear, all of the body of Christ, before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone. They pretty much said, get everyone here that you can. So, sorry, a little emotional after uh, hearing the intensity of the video, but uh, and the audio calls there. And it's an urgent decision because to delay makes the right decision harder. Indecision in itself is a choice. Not to decide is to decide not to. Anyway, today we, as I said, we're wrapping up our fall series of messages on biblical prophecy. Uh, somebody yesterday asked me, well, um, have you gotten any comments from people about the fall campaign this year? And I said, oh man, absolutely. Uh, in fact, in our last board meeting, which was last Tuesday, one of our board members, who's also a small group leader, said to me, thank you so much for the campaign this year, for the theme this year. They said, we have never seen more interest or interaction in our small group questions and so forth. We've never seen more of it than we have this year. It's really engaged a lot of our people. And I think a, a lot of that is probably just because of everything that's going on in the world right now. Uh, a lot of people, the truth is, a lot of people in the know are very afraid of what's happening. Last Sunday, Greg Johnson and I were in Washington, D.C., and we got a chance to discuss with uh, some, some people in leadership, both economically and politically and so forth, and, and to, to hear them speak about uh, concerns that they have about what's happening in the world. And a lot of it's out of our control. It's just the, the, the day and age in which we live, right? This is a day and age that you want to be close to Jesus because the Lord has uh, talked about all of these things. And that's why we've wanted to make you aware of, of everything that uh, the Bible has to say about this. But I do know that I haven't answered every question that you may have concerning the uh, end, end times prophecy. In fact, I may have generated more than I actually answered, you know. But well, you can understand over a six-week uh, span of time, you can't answer every question that might be out there on this particular subject. But uh, I have shared with you, to the best of my ability, my understanding of what the scriptures say about these things. And I, I know on some of these points there are differences about how maybe some of us interpret scripture or believe there are minor differences, and I think that that's fine within the body of Christ. We can agree to disagree. I always look at it this way. I have my opinion, and you can have your opinion, and, and you know, if you want to be wrong, you can be wrong, but I, I'll stick with my opinion on these matters, you know, but uh, I think the body of Christ ought to be big enough that in loving relationship with one another, we can disagree about small matters, but still, we, we understand the essence of what the Lord has given us in Scripture. In fact, it was Paul who said, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, that these thoughts ought to encourage us, ought to comfort us in the Lord. And so uh, if we know Christ is our Savior, we see these things happening, and there's a natural, perhaps, uh, fear factor that kind of sometimes as we look out into the future, we wonder what the future holds. But, you know, fear and anxiety are the result of us not taking God out into the future with us. You know, it's one thing to look out into the future and wonder what's going to happen, all the maybes, the might ifs, uh, the what ifs, I guess, I guess the might bees, you know. Uh, you, can, you can go out there and you can think, you can be fearful about what might be happening out there. But if you take God out into that future with you, you don't have anything to worry about. All right? So that, that's the thing to do. That keeps your fear, that keeps your anxiety um, uh, subdued. And you can live in the peace of the Lord. 
Now, over the past couple of weeks, I've encouraged you to ask some questions. We gave you out some, some cards for you to fill out questions that you might have about the subject of biblical prophecy that you felt like uh, you needed more clarification on. And I received 48 different questions that were given. And of those 48, um, I, I kind of I brought it down to what I would consider to be four that captured the essence of all 48, because a lot of them were very similar questions. And so I want to open today's message by just sharing with you answers. Uh, hopefully it'll clear it up, not make it muddier. It'll clear it up questions with regards to biblical prophecy that you shared or you asked of me over the last couple of weeks. The first question that I would share with you or ask or commit to you that you asked to me is about the new heavens and the new earth. And I thought I would take this one because I never did address this particular subject of the new heavens and the new earth uh, biblically. So I thought this would be a good one for us to look at. You can kind of look at the, the promise of the new heavens and the new earth this way. It's the end of the story as far as what the Bible reveals. It's not the end of the story in the sense of that we're going to end, you know, or that everything comes to an end. It's the end of the story as far as biblical prophecy is concerned. That's as far as the Bible takes us into the future. And it comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, which says, But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth that he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. Now, the verse just preceding, verse number 12, tells us how this is all going to happen. It says, On that day, he will set up the heavens, or he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. And so uh, what he's telling us here is that everything that we perceive right now and see right now is going to come to an end. We who know Christ are not going to come to an end, but I'm saying that the earth, the created earth, the created heavens are going to come away, come to, come to an end, and God is going to, uh, going to create new heavens, new earth in their place. And so the obvious question that came to me is, why would God do that? Why would he start over? I, I grew up in the church world, and so I've, I've heard about uh, the new heavens and new earth since I was a little kid. I remember the first time, because I'm from Indiana originally, where it's pretty flat and a lot of cornfields. And so I remember the first time driving out with my parents, and we happened to go to Colorado Springs. And there you see Pikes Peak sticking up, you know. I had never seen the Rocky Mountains before. And I remember thinking in my head, why would God destroy this? This is so incredible. And now over these years, not only have I seen the Rockies uh, on the Colorado side, but I see them every day on the Utah side. Certainly beautiful, the creation that God has, has given to us. But why would he destroy all of this and start all over again? Well, I think that the answer to this is actually found uh, in, the, in the verses that we've read in verse number 13, it says here in verse 13 that the new heavens and earth, that in them righteousness only will prevail. It will permeate, it will fill everything. Righteousness and holiness will fill everything in this new heavens and new earth. So the new heavens and earth will be God recreating everything and returning it, I believe, to its original state before sin entered the universe. God's going to give it back to us. Because you see, right now, and I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to understand this, righteousness does not prevail 
in the created universe. We would all understand that. Our, our world has been terribly stained by sin. But after the devil and his angels are judged by Christ and are sent to eternal fire, God will create a new heaven and a new earth that will have never known the touch of sin. Won't that be something? Never known the touch of sin. I mean, every year when I go out into my yard and there's another weed, I think of what Adam did. Adam created that weed. He created the conditions for that weed in my yard. There will be no weeds in the eternal kingdom of God. There's going to be no touch of hell, no touch of sin in the cre new creation. It will be a perfect creation and will no longer know the devastation that sin has brought that we were born into that we live with. And it's far more than weeds. We understand the bigger picture of what sin has done. So why is God creating a new heavens and new earth? simply because he's going to give us the new package that will have never known the touch of hell or of sin ever one time. Boy, that'll be a place to be. Amen. Number two, someone asked, what's the difference between the rapture and the second coming? Now, I thought I would take this one, even though I've answered it previously, because obviously I think people still struggle understanding the difference between these two events. And so they get them confused sometimes. So I just thought I, I would give this to you. The rapture is Jesus returning in the air to catch away his church. And his church is not an organization. It's an organism. It's all true followers of Jesus Christ. People who have accepted Christ as their personal savior, have repented of their sins, and have walked away from the world. They're not perfect, but they are living their lives under the lordship of, of Jesus Christ. These are the true followers of Jesus. This, this is the true church of Jesus Christ. It's not an organization. It is a living organism. Okay, I, I think it's important for you to understand. And Jesus is coming back in the air to gather his church and to take us away to heaven. Now, two things will happen after the rapture. First of all, in heaven, the church will enjoy what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the reference to that is in Revelation chapter 19. And this is a celebration feast of the bride of Christ, which is the church. It's referred to oftentimes in the scripture as the bride of Christ. That's the church of Jesus Christ. It's, it's a celebration of this bride finally being united with the groom, who is Jesus himself. And, you know, in most marriage feasts, the focus of the ceremony, of the feast, everything, is the bride. She's the focal point. But in, in eternity, it's going to be the bridegroom who's going to be the focal point because he is the Savior who died, who was slain from the foundations of the world. And he will be the focus point of this great celebration time. So while this is going on in the heavens, on earth, something else is taking place, and it's called the Great Tribulation. And the Bible, the book of Revelation, reveals that the Great Tribulation is a great time of wrath. That would be a good defining uh, characteristic of what the Tribulation is. It's a time of great wrath. It's the wrath of Satan, and we know that he will pour out his anger and his hatred against humanity, and it's also a time of the wrath of God where those who have blasphemed 
Everything that's godly and holy will be dealt with very severely during this period of time. And so this great tribulation, Jesus said, will be like a time that has never been experienced on earth before. Some people say that we're in the tribulation right now. I want you to know that as bad as things are in the world today, it is nothing compared to what is to come during the great tribulation. That time will be so horrific. Jesus said there's never been a time like it before, and there will never be a time like it again. So the marriage supper of the Lamb and the great tribulation are happening in different parts of, uh, of the universe, so to speak. In heaven is the marriage supper of the Lamb. On earth is the great tribulation. Now, after this seven-year tribulation, Jesus Christ will return to earth with his church, which has been raptured. The church that's been raptured is going to return with them. And this return of Christ is called the second coming. So in the first coming, he comes in the air. In this coming, he will come actually to the planet, to planet Earth. When he comes, he will defeat Antichrist. He will bind Satan for a thousand-year period of time. And he will establish what is called his millennial reign upon the, the earth. The word millennium means 1,000 years. So in the rapture, Jesus comes in the clouds and he catches his church away. In the second coming, it's seven years later, he literally comes back to the earth and establishes his millennial reign upon the earth. So that's the difference between the rapture and the second coming. Hopefully I stated that well enough for you to understand. Number three, Will the Holy Spirit be active during the Great Tribulation? The short answer to this question is yes. The Holy Spirit will still be active here on earth during the Great Tribulation period. Many of us were raised with, I think, well-intentioned but wrong uh, teaching about the Holy Spirit's activity during the Great Tribulation. I certainly was. I was led to believe that when the church was raptured, the Holy Spirit would go with all the believers and, and, you know, chaos would rule on earth and so forth. But I have found that to be not entirely true. Here's what I want to explain to you. For, well, for one thing, King David, the psalmist, said in Psalm 139, verse 7, 8, Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. So where is God's presence? Everywhere, right? Even in hell, God's presence is there. What that is teaching us is that God is always everywhere. He's always everywhere. It's what we call theologically his omnipresence. It means present everywhere at the same time. King Solomon, when he dedicated the, the first temple in, in Jerusalem, acknowledged this very thing when he said in 1 Kings chapter 8, but will God really live on earth? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I have built. So if it is true that God is always everywhere, how can it be true that his presence is going to leave the earth when the, when the rapture takes place? Does that make sense? How can it be true that he won't be here during uh, the great tribulation period? The fact is, and this is my understanding, the Spirit will still be very much here during the Great Tribulation period. The difference will be in how the Spirit will function during the Great Tribulation as opposed to how He is functioning today. 
Right now, today, he draws people to salvation. And according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, he acts as a restrainer against the intended evil, the full expression of evil that Satan would like to bring upon the world. After the church is raptured, the Holy Spirit will no longer restrain evil to the degree that he is restraining evil now. Now, I think it's important that you heard what I said. It's not that he will not restrain any evil, because if he were to, restra if he were to not restrain any evil, the enemy would destroy humanity within probably hours, at least a few days. I believe that the Holy Spirit will still be restraining evil during the Great Tribulation period, but he will not be restraining it as much. I suppose if you were to look at it this way, it, if, if the Holy Spirit is restraining evil on this level in the world today, during the Great Tribulation, he'll be restraining evil on this level. So what you have is this difference that's allowed to take place upon the earth, which is primarily described in the book of Re Revelation. So the rapture happens and it opens the door for Satan to come against humanity as, as humanity has never known before. We've known dark days, but we'll never know anything like what the Great Tribulation will be. So the Spirit of God will still be upon the earth. He will still draw people to the truth. He will still make it possible for people during the Great Tribulation to make a confession of faith in Christ and to be drawn to Jesus Christ as Savior and to be saved. That's, that's the result of the function of the two witnesses and the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are out spreading the good news. And then as people get saved, they witness to other people as well. So it's going to be mass evangelism all over the earth. He will make that possible, but a greater degree of evil will dominate as part of the overall plan of God for the ultimate second coming of Christ. So hopefully that helps you to understand what I believe the work of the Holy Spirit will be during the Great Tribulation. He will be active, he will be here, because God is always everywhere, and he will be drawing men and women to Christ. He simply won't be restraining evil to the degree that he is today. Number four, I'm going to address this one because it was written by a 12-year-old little girl in our church. And it says, will the Antichrist just appear on earth or will he be born? <laughs> so the Bible reveals that the Antichrist will be a man who will rise to power during the Great Tribulation. We don't know who he is. We don't know exactly where he will be born, but we do know that he will be fully human. Because many of the over 100 scriptures given in the Bible that talk about him refer to him as a man. So he will not just magically appear, poof, he's here. He will be born like any other child is born. He will have a mother and he will have a father, but his heart at an early age will begin to turn toward evil as he grows. And he will eventually give himself entirely to be a puppet of the devil. You know, I've often thought to myself, I wonder what kind of a baby Hitler was. I wonder what kind of a little boy he was. At what point did he turn into the savage that he became? See, 
Charles Manson at one point was an innocent little child. But what all of this brings out to us is the importance that even as children at a young age, we make wise choices with our lives and allow the Holy Spirit that we stay tender, let's put it that way, to the Holy Spirit in our lives. That will keep us from falling into evil because anybody can go that way if they don't stay close to Jesus and how important it is that we teach our children to, ha to learn to have a heart for God and to turn the direction towards the Lord, not away from the Lord. Amen? Amen. Okay. So then to close today's message, I just want to answer one more question with you, and it's the title of our message, Where Do We Go From Here? So we've talked a lot about a lot of things about what's going on in the world. We've talked about the rapture. We've talked about what to do if you miss the rapture. We've talked about the tribulation. We've talked about the people that will be the, the hallmark people during the great tribulation, who they are, what they'll do. Um, so where do we go from here with what we've learned? There are three suggestions that I want to give to you. Number one, continue to work hard for Jesus until he comes. Don't back. This is not the day or the time to back off. You work hard for Christ as long as he gives you life and until he comes back. And I thought about this with regards to the parable that Jesus gave to us in Luke 19. And here he, he talks about a nobleman who is, who's going away to be crowned king over his region. And before he goes, he calls his servants together and he gives to each of them a certain amount of money. What the Bible says, for our understanding, be about three months worth of wages. And then he says these words to them in Luke 19, verse 13, occupy till I come. Occupy till I come. When I thought, what are, where do we go from here? Man, those words just boom, rang out in my ears and my heart. Occupy. Teach the people. Tell the people to occupy until I come. Now, the word occupy means to stay busy or to get to work. Make your life useful to God. And it's interesting here that Jesus links his coming to this work. We do this, how long do we do it? Till he comes. We're busy until he comes. We're working for him until he comes. Stay busy for the kingdom until I come. What all of us have to do is realize that we are here on this planet today as God's representatives to complete a task that is unique to each and every one of us. I don't have your calling, you don't have my calling. We're, every one of us, a little bit different in how we reach people and how God uses us. This task that he has given us is not about making money. He may bless you with wealth, but that's not the number one thing that God's doing in your life. It's not about owning or possessing anything. He may allow you to be blessed with wonderful possessions, but that's, the not, that's not the number one thing God wants to do with you. God's number one purpose in your life is not to help you make refrigerator payments. God's number one purpose in your life is to use you, that you have a purpose for use. And it's about doing the work God created and saved you to do. Because if you don't do that, whatever kind of faith you have, the Bible says is worthless. 
if you're not using your faith, if you're not using the giftings, the calling that God is, if all you do is come on Sundays and sit for an hour, it's worthless. James says in 2.17, it is dead. So you've got to combine not only the saving work of Christ, you've got to combine the action that his spirit within you produces. You and I have a job to do. Paul tells us, Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork. What does that mean? That means he made us, he fashioned us. We're his handiwork created to do good works. We've been created to do something with our life. In fact, this is so powerful that God did this, God prepared for this before you were ever born, before your parents ever thought about you, before your grandparents ever knew that you would be here. Clear back to Adam. God prepared before the creation of the world that you would be here for such a time as this. Wow, what a statement. Let God use us. We have a primary purpose for our lives on this earth, and that is to work for Jesus. That is to occupy, to do your ministry. You have been called to ministry. Now, you may not have been called to ministry exactly the way I have been called to ministry, but you have nonetheless been called to ministry to fulfill what God created you to do, and that is to touch a world that desperately needs to know that Jesus Christ is the only hope. We sang about it this morning. There is no God like our God. There's no other God but him. He's the one true living God. All the other gods of the people, all the other religions are false. It's just Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. And we've got to let the world know, brothers and sisters. We've got to let them know. So don't get so caught up in everything that's happening in the world that you give up on life. That's what he say, occupy. Be busy about the work that I've called you to do. Be busy about preparing yourself for the work that I want you to do. I remember in college days, and Carrie will remember this, we had some kids that would say, souls are dying and going to hell, and here we are wasting our time in college. Do you know that not one of the kids that said that back then is today serving God in the ministry? They might be serving God, but they're not serving God in ministry. None of them. Their lives fizzled out to nothing because they would not prepare themselves for the call that God had placed upon their lives. And, and there is a preparation that we have to engage in to be most effective for God. And you say, well, I'm old. You're not too old to learn. Never give up on preparing, on bettering yourself, on improving yourself, on getting that education. Occupy until he comes and let God, let God use it. So the, the idea is whatever I do with my life, however I improve it, I improve it for the glory of God, for Jesus to use it. And I make my plans based on the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. And God, whatever you allow me to do with my life, here it is. I'm giving it to you. Amen? And make sure that you do what God wants you to do because listen, you have been placed on this planet for such a time as this right now. It's a great privilege to be a part of the last day's church of Jesus Christ. So we have a big obligation. Let's use our talents for the Lord. Amen? All right, good. Number two, don't let the cares of life overwhelm you. Again, another parable of Jesus given in Matthew 13. It's often called the parable of sower or the seed. And then he says that a farmer went out and he sowed his seed in the field. And you know how they sowed it. They didn't have tractors and stuff. They threw it like this, you know. 
And some of the seed fell on well-worn path, and it says it got trampled and it never sprouted. And some of the seed fell on rocky ground where there was a little bit of soil and it did sprout up, but because there was no depth to the soil, the sun came down, beat it, and dried it out, and it died quickly. Um, a third seed fell on soil where weeds and thorns already thrived. And he said that when it sprouted, the thorns actually choked out the good seed and it died. And then he talks about a fourth kind of seed that was scattered out and it landed on good soil and it produced a great, great harvest, some 30, 60, some 100 fold. It's that third seed that I want to talk with you about here this morning. The seed in this story represents the word. It represents the work of God in the world. And Jesus said about this third kind of seed that it all fell or that it fell on the weed, amongst the weeds and amongst the thorns and it was choked out. And when he was asked what that meant, he identified the thorns and the weeds as the cares of life. Boy, that one has always touched me. The worries of life the needs of life, the cares of life come in and they choke out the good seed. Here's the point for us. We are in the last days before Jesus comes back. Now, whether that means that he's going to come back today or a hundred years from now, I don't know for sure, but it does seem to me sooner than later. What Satan wants to do to all of us is to get us so focused, so sidetracked, by all the cares and the worries of life that you give up on God and you give up on living for him. I wonder to myself how many people used to sit in some of these chairs that have allowed that very thing to happen where today they're sitting at home bitter because of some unfortunate something that comes along in their life and they get mad at God and they walk out. More than we'd like to know are a part of that third group. Listen, there is nothing worth giving up on your soul for. I don't care what happens to any of us physically or emotionally in our relation. Nothing is worth blaming God over and walking out on God for. Jesus said, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul, what value is that to you? And so we must consider this, brothers and sisters, that in these last days of very intensive life, and we've all got it, we've got more gadgets to help us save time, and yet we're the busiest we've ever been. We have less time than we've ever had. And, and that's a trap of the, of the enemy to get you so caught up in the here and now that you miss the hereafter. Don't let that happen. Keep your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got, you, you've got to decide that you're going to follow him. And I've had, some of the questions that came to me said, well, Pastor Jim, how do I know if I'm, if I'm lukewarm? And, and I fear that I'm lukewarm, and, and maybe I won't go in the rapture. And, and I think that's a great question. How do you know? Well, the simple answer is, if Jesus isn't your Lord, if you're holding stuff back from him, if you're not letting him into that area of your life, you say, I, I'll let you have 90% of me, but 10% you can't have. You're lukewarm. If you've got areas reserved in your life and you push God out and you really don't let the Spirit talk to you, I'm not interested in what the Holy Spirit might say. You're lukewarm. If you're in rebellion to God, you're lukewarm. 
Being hot for Jesus simply means that you have given him your heart, you've given him your soul, you've given him your body, your body is for his glory, your past, you've given that to him and let him forgive you, and you move on from there. Don't let the devil keep you back there. Move on from there. You've given Jesus your future. It doesn't mean that you're you're perfect because no, nobody is perfect, but it does mean that you've surrendered yourself to his lordship and you let him call the shots in your life and you obey him. He gives the orders. You obey. If that's you, then you're on fire for Jesus. You're white hot for Jesus and your future is secure in the Lord. And I just leave you with that encouragement. Don't let anything in this life destroy your full commitment to Jesus Christ. The third thing I want to leave with you is simply this, keep your life ready for Christ's return. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 24, so you too must keep watch for you don't know what day the Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. Um, Sid, you talked about your house being broken into. Was that this morning? That was Friday. Yeah, you were talking about that. Yeah, Friday night. Yeah. Carrie and I have had that happen to us too. And boy, you know, when you've been violated like that, you just say, if I'd only been home a little sooner. But truth is, depending on, on the burglar, you might be dead if you were home a little bit sooner. But we all have that feeling of protection. Oh, I wish I'd have been here before they, they entered the house and did and, and that's what he says here. If, if you knew when the burglar was coming, you'd keep watching, not permit the house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. He's not comparing himself to a burglar. He's comparing himself here to being ready for the unexpected. That's what the point of this is. So let me give you two suggestions. Number one, don't live in fear. Satan specializes in fear. The fear mongers are all over the place in America today, and they're trying to scare you into buying their pro product so that you will supposedly be prepared for the apocalypse that's coming, and that's all over the place. Remember that God does not operate in fear. Make decisions with your life based on the word of God and the peaceful leading of the Holy Spirit. And if you do that, you will be fine, okay? And then number two, keep short accounts with God. And that means you let the Holy Spirit speak to you continually to lead you, to encourage you, to convict you. Don't let sins and failures in your life pile up so high that it seems over, impossible to overcome them. Confess your shortcomings to the Lord continually. Ask forgiveness. Ask for God's cleansing of your heart. Tell Jesus that you want to live for his glory in your actions, your attitudes, and your speech. You do that and you'll be ready for the coming of Jesus. Just one last thing. I just want to say this. It is not enough to pray a prayer and then think everything is right between you and God. That's the starting place. But it must go deeper than that. Your commitment to Jesus must affect every area of your life. That's called lordship. It must affect how you treat other people. It must affect how you talk, your language, how you do business, what you allow into your life. And that's, what, that's the good that happens when we study biblical prophecy. 
because it leads us to a deeper commitment and a love for the Lord. Hopefully that's happened to you over these weeks. The Apostle Peter simply put it this way in 2 Peter 3. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives should you live? Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. Let's be people who constantly ask ourselves what's most important in our lives. Here at Life Church, we pray that you have a blessed week. Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can always go to lifechurchutah.com.